0: Hey, what's good everybody, my name is Brandon and I'm on staff here at Renaissance Church. Because I'm one of the newest staff members, I think it's appropriate for me to just take a couple of moments and explain a little bit about who I am and why I'm so excited and humbled to uh, to have the privilege of serving our community in this way. So my wife, Malia, and I have been acquainted with Renaissance for about five years. We've been members for four. We have two small children named Titus and Sarai, who are very energetic, that we love very dearly. Uh, I myself am from Hack and Tack, New Jersey originally, and I'm a little more proud of that than most true Harlemites would, would say I should be, but please don't hold that against me. Um, I come from a very large family that's been around the New York and New Jersey area for well over 100 years, and so I'm very excited to be serving this community in this way in particular. Uh, Right before being on staff, I was actually on the board at Renaissance or on the management team, as we call it. And I also served on a board or an elder team for Aletheia Church in the past as well. I'm currently a seminary student at Reformed Theological Seminary. And I spent the last 10 years working in the business world um, in sales and sales management, primarily in the tech field. That's a little bit about me. Uh, But before we jump in, I'm going to quote a psalm and I'm going to pray. Psalm 126.5 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Lord God, we love you. And we just thank you for who you are, Lord God. You are glorious. You are majestic. You are holy, God. You are good, And we praise your holy name, Father. And we pray that we would get to know your holiness even more, Lord God, that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord, that we may worship you, that we may adore you above all else. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. You know, recently I was in class with a professor who I, like no funny stuff, consider the wisest person that I know, all jokes aside. This dude, like, he's doing one of these quintessential question and answer sessions. And you know these becoming theologians right, are asking him these like, deep questions that I know I wouldn't be able to answer and he's knocking all of them out of the park. Like I'm jotting notes down fiercely and uh, trying to remember every single thing that he's saying even though I know I, I will probably never. And we get to, toward the end of the class and we have about five minutes left. And the professor says, hey, I have time for like one more quick question, if if anybody has one. And of course, really quick, you know, one of the most vocal people in our class raises his hand swiftly. But this time he asks a really simple question. He just says, how are you doing? And you see, at that point, the, the temperature in the room shifted, like I could feel it even though we were on Zoom. Because you see, our professor has pancreatic cancer And for those of you who don't know, pancreatic cancer happens to take the life of 80% of its patients in the first 12 months. When my professor went to answer the question, he said, you know, praise God that we have received a positive prognosis so far, and it seems like we may be the people who make it past this first hurdle. And he said, I've been so grateful that I've been able to do the things that I love and that I feel called to, like being in this class with you all. But then he said something that really stuck with me. He said, but I've gotta be honest, my biggest fear is not even that I would receive a negative prognosis. No, no, my biggest fear is that my wife and I would go back, go back to living the self-sufficient lives that we've uncovered that we were living before we found out that I have cancer. You see, this has ushered us into a deeper community that we've never known before and it's forced us to acknowledge our dependence on things outside of ourselves. And so my biggest hope is that as as we get past this first hurdle that we would live lives that show our deep dependence on God and God alone. If I'm speaking for myself personally, my biggest fear with everything we've gone through this year <laughs> that I don't even have to name my biggest fear is not that we would see more waves of COVID throughout the turning of this new year, wave two, wave three, wave four, whatever number you want to slap on it, though that is real. And though I mourn the, the, the terror that it has caused us, it's not my biggest fear. My biggest fear is that as we come out of this, as some things start to happen that make it seem like we're getting back to some semblance of a new normal, that we would go back to living a self-sufficient self-absorbed, self-important life, or even worse, that we would rebuild something that's even more self-absorbed than it was in the past. Zephaniah is interesting, and that's our focus passage here today. It's Zephaniah, you can flip to chapter three. But Zephaniah is interesting because as an author, he actually lived through some tough times. He was an Israelite and he lived underneath Assyrian oppression. So he lived underneath oppression his whole life. And he watched the people of God rebel underneath that oppression. They rebelled as they looked and and hoped for better days. And then God audibly spoke to Zephaniah. Like he literally spoke to him. And Zephaniah is bringing this word that we have in this, this book. He's bringing this word to God's people, to the Israelites. And, and honestly, it's a tough word. But when he when he starts to get more specific, he gives some directives here. And we pick up in verse 9 when he says, through Zephaniah, when God says through Zephaniah, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. How do we break free from this cycle of negativity and, and pessimism and injustice that tough times seem to encourage? God suggests through Zephaniah here that it begins and ends with one thing and, and, and the one point and one point only that I have for you today, worship God. <laughs> like worship God. Even if you're sitting there and, and, and you're thinking, well, I don't worship Uh, you know, most of the definitions you would find in the common dictionaries, or even if you Google it right now, like definition of worship, you'll find something to the effect of a feeling of expression or adoration toward a deity. Uh, And and that deity there, whether or not you believe in a God, can really be a multitude of things, uh, you know, when you really look at the common dictionaries. Like whatever you've placed highest, in your life, and and you might have trouble naming that, but it could be something like your job, or maybe how you look. Maybe the most important thing to you is that other people would compliment how you look. Or maybe it's your studying. Maybe it's your academics and and the knowledge that that you want to be able to gain. Uh, And it can be a multitude of things that you've placed and, and given supreme importance in your life that have the power to control some of the decisions you make whether or not you acknowledge that right now. But, but even further than that, you know, the scriptures, I think, give us a really robust presentation and explanation of what worship is throughout the entirety of the Bible and even in this specific passage. I think we can pull out a pretty robust definition even from here if you'll walk with me. If we back up to verse seven, so chapter three, verse seven of Zephaniah, God says through Zephaniah, surely you will fear me. And we know from the hundreds of times this type of phrase is used. There's this idea of an acknowledgement of who God is and an adoration for God because of that. Like Who God is, like the creator and sustainer of all things. You know what I like to think about when I think about who God is and how massive and grand God is, this God that is worthy of worship. Uh, Isaiah 40:12 says, he holds the water in the hollow of his hand. Like you think about it, like you go to the beach and there's this massive body of water that can throw you around and it, it's, it's huge. And, and the water is further than you can even see. You take that water and then all the other water from around the earth and it just fits like right here in God's hand, like that's how grand he is, worthy of worship, worthy to, to be feared and revered. So before worship is anything, it's, it's an internal thing. It's a heart thing. It, it is a having faith in the God that you know. And then it, it moves forward. We see in verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. So it goes from this internal thing, this this heart thing, this this faith, and it moves to an external, an audible thing. So now, now we see this image like calling upon the name of the Lord in worship. And then even a step further in verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Cush, which is modern-day Ethiopia or Sedan, d- depending on who you talk to. From, from beyond the rivers of, of modern-day Ethiopia or Sedan, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So it goes from this internal thing to being this audible thing to then being like this actionable thing there's this image of people getting up and and going and and doing and giving of what they have as a sacrificial offering of of love unto the glory of God. To worship is to know God and to show the worth of God. To know God and to show the worth of God. But for being honest, we can't worship God if, if we treat God kind of like the spare tire in the back of the car, right? Like, like we keep God around in case something goes flat in life, and then you pull him out, slap him on. And even then, he only gets you to where you were really trying to go anyway until you could get a, a different tire, uh, something else to swap him out and, and then put him back, right? Like you know you need to keep God around, but you kind of want him in his place, in the back, out of sight. True worship is more than that. True worship is seeing God as the very destination of our our car, the place we want to be, not just the spare tire in the back of the car. Worship is a vehicle that forms us and trial is a type of fuel for the vehicle. You know there's this concept called post-traumatic growth And a leading psychologist from the University of Virginia, formerly the University of Charlotte, puts it somewhat like this, that post-traumatic growth is both a process and an outcome by which humans experience trauma and then have tremendous growth related to that area of trauma. It's an interesting thing. You can think of it like an earthquake, right? Like Earthquakes are devastating. They're terrible buildings fall down lives are lost cities are upended countries are made destitute it's awful yet post-traumatic growth focuses on the facet of that that something like that happening and and seeing how people build things back afterwards cities have gone through this type of thing and when you think of it a building falls for instance And the next building that will be built after many events will be built with the knowledge of what it might take to better resist that type of event again. It'll be a better building. So is post-traumatic growth. And we're going through an earthquake of sorts right now, (laughs) a mass reorientation, economically, socially. Politically, there's a lot of different things happening right now, emotionally, and worship will ensure that as we rebuild, God not only reorients us economically and emotionally, but God also restores us to a forever freedom and healing that can't be achieved without worship. Yet, when we are in trouble, there seems to be two incomplete Styles or types of worship that, that I find common that prevent us from a more whole worship, and this brings us back to our psalm. Psalm one twenty six five says, "Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy." So there are two sides here: uh, the, the the sowing in tears and the reaping with shouts of joy. But what I've noticed is that sometimes we can focus on one side or the other. Uh, both sides I respectively call. Uh, B-headed worship and big-headed worship. So there's this idea, just briefly before I dive in deeper, that B-headed worship is more so. Uh, it, well, really, there's this dichotomy, uh, or, or there's this. Uh, there are two sides. There, there's a mind and a heart of worship, right? And, and a B-headed worshipper might take the mind out of worship. Right, like only focusing on the passion. A, a, a big-headed worshiper might take the heart out of worship. Uh, but, but let's start with beheaded. Beheaded, again, is when you uh, only sit in tears. You, you stop at the tears. It's all passion, all heart, um, no, no head. And, and, and what's happening here? Right? Like it, it can be good to be aware of ourselves. I've taken many personality tests this you know, the past few years. And it's good to be aware of our emotions and and to work on those things. But sometimes we can be so aware of ourselves that it's all we remain aware about in the middle of trouble. You know, recently I suffered a very close loss in my family. Um, My dear and and beautiful Aunt Wanda, who is literally a second mother to me in more ways than I can explain fully here. Um, She passed away in November. And when that happened, I noticed as I began to to fully grieve that a pattern arose. I began to treat Malia, my wife, like she should just give me my space, like she should just leave me alone, like she should just know that I'm hurt and like not to add me into all these extra things like in all these shenanigans and just give me my space, give me my peace. I started to expect that of her. And while my mourning is very complicated and very real, It didn't erase the fact that, you know, we have two small children who I mentioned before that we need to raise together, for instance. (laughs) And so I'm not saying, I'm I'm not trying to minimize tears here. I still shed tears over this to this very day. But what I am emphasizing and showing is how the scriptures say, don't just sit in tears, but rather, sow in tears. And what does it look like to sow in tears? So the Israeli Defense Force, or Israel's army, was attacked in 1973 by Egypt and Syria on the same day. And they blew right through Israel's like defense line of tanks that they had with these new SAGR missiles that they were shooting with, or new ISH. And what was crazy about these missiles was they were very powerful, and they could be shot by one single person just like sitting in a sand pit or something. And they shoot it off, and they had this remote control where they would guide the missile, and all they needed to do was see the light this light, this little like, red light at the end of the missile and the target and game over, big damage. This was scary for Israel. Um, they were losing people and they could be taken over in a matter of hours with this, this kind of weapon. So they had to come up with something quick. The front line of defense actually came up with a very interesting tactic. They decided that whenever they saw a missile shot the tanks would start to just drive around in circles and kick up dust. When they did that, they blinded the sight of the person shooting the missile who could no longer see the target and who could no longer see the red light on the missile. With that tactic, they were able to win the battle. What's interesting about that is that they took a traumatic scenario and they put it to use to create something that they would be able to use for a long time to win things. And that's this this the same idea that we've been talking about with sewing in tears. But but what am I holding on to when I'm just sitting in the tears? Like what I was doing with my wife in the beginning of my my grief process. I think a couple of things I could be holding on to, or, or uh, that I could I could get to when I'm only sitting in tears and not sewing in tears is uh, th- the first one would maybe be this elevated self importance, right? Like I have put myself in a position where, like, I have earned the right, right? It's not that I just want space. It's not that I just need a little bit of space for a period of time. It's that I took on a posture, and maybe this is true of you too, but I know I personally took on a posture that said, like, I should be left alone because my tears and my grieving and my pain have earned me the right to not have to deal with these things. But, but, but what's happening there is, is, is again, I'm kind of elevating myself to a place, uh, you know, God's tears earned us the right to have joy everlasting, not ours. The very tears of Jesus earned us the right to have joy and peace everlasting. Another thing I could be holding on to uh, or, or that I could get to when I only sit in tears is this glorified sense of grief. Like grief and and sorrow becomes this ever-present force that's just in all things, always lurking around the corner, and you can become capable of always seeing the wrong in every single scenario, always able to see the negative. Uh, You can become a scoffer, which is very popular in our current public discourse, but you can become a scoffer, somebody who's just like a fountain of negativity and grief because Everything you learn and everything you, you you see can can become just a new avenue to experience grief because you think it's everywhere. It is always right there if you just look hard enough. But if we never move past sitting in tears to sewing in tears, our our sadness can turn into crippling hopelessness. Our annoyance can turn into you know like outright resentment, uh, our fear can turn into anxious terror. But, but we have to practice getting to acknowledging what is true of God, that he is good and worthy of our full worship. And, and, and then there's big headed worship. Big headed worship is, is really when we just rush past feeling, rush past the passion, rush past tears of joy or tears of sadness and, and just straight to shouts of joy. Um, th- this type of person might be worshiping, and worship is just a matter of fact and a matter of logic, you know. This person might be admired for knowing the right answer, the right biblical answer, and staying true and and always seeming to have the right outlook on things because they've rehearsed it. You know, unlike Jordan's story from a couple of weeks ago where he was tempted to cheat in in college and stayed true, I regret to inform you that in undergrad, I was tempted, and uh, once it did not hold up. But it was in a medical appliances class. JMU, please don't rescind my, my, my bachelor's degree in science. But it was it was in a medical appliances class or something like that, and, and and really it was my friend. My group of friends had these answers, right? Like, the friends you gave me, God. Um, but a, a group of friends that I had had these answers to all the tests and all the quizzes and, and even the final exam to, This class because the professor used the same material every semester and they caught on and and there we were Uh, i would whiz through all the quizzes and all the tests getting a's of course and everything was taken digitally so i would like take these little breaks to pretend and fill the time and it it just it was bad work we got to the final and the final was interesting i i I was whizzing through as normal but then i get to the end and there was an open-ended question that wasn't on my list so what do we do? I left it blank <laughs> because I didn't even buy the book in this class, like I was that disengaged. And man, that, that, that could have definitely turned out way worse than it did. But the question went something like, hey, this, this patient has this condition and they're gonna get this procedure, which tools will you use and why? And I had no answer, even though I had all the answers. Likewise, you can't standardized test your way through life in Christ. Rehearsed answers can only get you so far in real-life scenarios. It leaves you with an incomplete form of worship. If you have no tears to sow, then it's difficult to actually get to the shouts of joy that the Bible is talking about here not just practice shouts of joy. And this person could be holding on to a performance mindset, right? Like this idea that my worth is found in how I present, right? Like, or or what I portray that I think. Um, This person might be hiding hiding pain behind trivial Bible knowledge and and painting the picture that everything's always fine, right? This might be the person that is never sharing prayer requests about themselves in DNA, only about friends and relatives, because I know people, right, Like that, that, that are messed up, that have things going on. But me, I'm always good, because God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Amen? And while that's true, while that's true, that doesn't negate the things that we go through, or the things that we've gone through in this very year. Zephaniah three fourteen says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. And then verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn. As Zephaniah speaks from the very mouth of God and, and says that he's gathering his worshipers, he also calls them people who mourn. It's, it's almost like you can't get to the worship fully or the shouts of joy genuinely without the sowing in tears, without the grief. God calling us to worship him is not this empty formula or the beginning of some empty formula to get into heaven. He's calling us to a worship, a shout for joy, a sacrificial offering, and a shout for joy that can only be had because of grief. Because of the very grief of Jesus Christ on the cross can we have shouts of joy forever. And that suffering savior is coming back to gather his suffering worshipers. Just to finish the chapter for you real quick. In verse 19, behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Zephaniah ends here with a word saying that worship has usefulness in our lives as well. The best way I can put it, there was a king named Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was a very popular king. You can read about him in Second Chronicles, like chapters 17 through 20-ish. He was a very popular king and a very powerful king at that. He built a 1.16 million person army, massive at that time. But then shortly after, four armies came against his one, as you can imagine, far outnumbering them, Jehoshaphat was very scared, as he should be. (laughs) But the first thing he did was he turned and he made all the people of Judah um, fast. He made them all fast. And then he's praised to God and even in prayer verbatim coming to God saying like, Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then he takes it a step further as they march into battle. He takes worshipers in song and priests to go before the 1.16 million person army. And as they march in, as they march into battle, he has them marching before the army again, marching and saying, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. His front line of offense in battle was worship. Worship is not just a song. Worship is a weapon. Worship surely is something that God uses to do things that we cannot see, but also to do things that we can see. There is mystery in worship. There is also utility in worship. Because look at this, as they worshiped, God set an ambush on the other four armies, and they destroyed themselves. (laughs) Judah never had to fight. All they had to do was worship, and right there, God showed how he intends to accomplish victory for his worshipers today and forevermore. You know, when, when we come out of this, As the year turns and some things start to happen that make it seem like maybe we're coming back to a new normal, will we forget that it was God that brought us through? Will we only praise essential workers and and Pfizer? Hopefully not. If we remain stayed on worshiping the creator and sustainer of all things right now. Lord God we love you. Heavenly Father, we adore you just for who you are. Outside of anything that you've done, outside of you operating with with, with better means than we have on this earth on our behalf, aside from that even, (laughs) you are good and you are great and worthy of our adoration and worthy of our full, bold worship, our faith-filled worship, our worship in shouts, our worship in bringing of offering of ourselves, oh God, of what we have, would you change us? Would you lead us, would you reveal yourself to us that we may know you, that we may love you above all else, And that we may love our neighbor like ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.